This is Bonjour Chai, the Just Be a Mensch edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Toronto, here in person with Phoebe Maltzvovi. We are your frozen chosen. On today's show, we talk rules, manners, menschlichkeit. We take a deep dive into these new lists for how to live in current society and whether they have relevance to the Jewish community. So, Phoebe... Welcome. We are here together. It's great to we be here. We are. It's amazing. I'm in Toronto for uh, some CJN all-day meetings we're going to have together and stuff. Uh, I'm at, we're at the wonderful Drake Hotel. We decided to record together. Yes, it's why amazing. Not? And can. an actual physical table. So uh, before we get to the show today and all the stuff that we have going, uh, first things first, uh, we are going to have a great Canadian Seder. Um, last year, it was a great success. We had a lot of fun with it. Um, I don't know if you remember, Phoebe, or if you heard it. Uh, no, I, I don't remember this, but I, I'm curious about so it. So we had um, a good number of Canadian personalities, some media personalities, some politicians, some rabbis. Um, each gave us their reflections on the Seder, and um, we compiled them all together into a wonderful uh, Seder episode with like all of these reflections all at once. It felt great. It was uh, very well received. People loved it. And we're going to do it again. We have a whole new slate of people that we are uh, going to have on the Seder. But, you know, if there is a frozen chosen of Mungyu that are wanting to uh, come on the Great Canadian Seder and speak their piece, um, the more detailed, the more focused you have as a piece, uh, send us a proposal, send us what you want to talk about. And, uh, um, we'll let you know. Uh, hopefully we can get a few of you in on the Great Canadian Seder. So send it to us at bonjour at the cjn.ca. So if you say, I want to talk about the carpas, or I want to talk about the child who does not know how to ask, or whatever it might be at the Seder, um, we're going to compile those together as we did last year, and hopefully with some of your input. Bonjour at the cjn.ca. Send us your Great Canadian Seder um, bits about that. The other thing to know is that we have been receiving a lot of responses about our episode on the Chabadification of Judaism. Uh, we are planning a part two, so stay tuned for that. Um, we will compile some of those responses, and we will have um, other people on to talk about the Chabadification of Judaism um, again shortly. So let's get into our main topic right after we hear from our sponsor. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. Tell me, Phoebe, what's on your mind these days? Uh, so I've been thinking about etiquette. I have been thinking about etiquette because everybody has been thinking about etiquette ever since New York Magazine published its uh, its article, uh, Do You Know How to Behave? Are You Sure? How to... It's not really an article. It's a, actually sort of a... As, it's I a guess, whole cover a, package. Uh, right, a package, right. That's what it would be called. How to text, tip, ghost, host, and generally exist in polite society today. So um, I wrote about this in... Um, 
in the CJN website, but also I've just been thinking about it in terms of like, is there a Jewish angle? Is there some sort of Jewish angle we can cover? But then Hey Alma beat us to this um, with a guide by Evelyn Frick called The New, and then in parentheses, Jewish, not triple parentheses, let me be clear, just yeah. normal parentheses, <laughs> okay. The New Jewish Rules, If You Have a Weird Bagel Order, Own It. And yeah, so there's a lot of discussion of etiquette these days. And I should say the reason this fascinates me is because these guides, um, both the Jewish one and the New York Magazine one, um, are interesting in sort of like in how they get really this, they form this really precise snapshot of a moment in time and the values of a particular milieu in a specific instant. And um that's always fun to pick apart. It, it really is. Um, you know, I feel like the time was really ripe for this, um, even though we're, it's like we're, we're at a time where almost rules don't matter, where it's like we are about breaking norms. We are about saying, if you want to do this, do this, go ahead. We're not going to tell you what to do or not to do. We're we in an unprecedented moment of autonomy in society. And yet um, there are so many rules and norms that are expected also on the other side. So it's almost like we are being told by the culture in general, right? And by Judaism at the same time also, right? That uh, both do everything in a very prescribed sort of way, right? Uh, But also don't tell anybody what to do because that's their choice and that's how they want to do it. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it really gets into this whole idea of Um, so-called wokeness or political correctness as a secular religion and this idea of there being sort of parameters and behavior and what is and isn't okay um, that aren't written down as religious rules anywhere and that are perhaps going to be sort of mysterious to some and just kind of um, that, that there isn't really an agreed upon rule book for everybody. And that's what's always so interesting with an etiquette guide is whose rules are these? Whose rules are you looking at? And with the New York Magazine one, I think they're pretty upfront um, about the fact that even though this is presented as a general guide, it's certainly not specifically Jewish one, it's a general guide. um, It's not general as in universal. So some of it is very New York specific about like how to tip in New York or whatever, but also the very first item is you you don't have to read everyone's book everybody's been talking about this this is like everybody yeah. knows author friends yeah and i mean this is something that okay like this is not totally irrelevant to my own life but it is not a general issue that people outside of kind of publishing journalism writing arts whatever are dealing with and then but then it gets even more glamorous later on where some of the items are about what to do if you meet like an a-list movie star and how to react, and what the etiquette is there. And clear, so clearly this is not um, a guide for absolutely everybody in the world. I just thought that was interesting because it really, um, it, it tells you that you're looking at the value system of a very specific set of people. And I feel like this comes up further on in the list, and I'm still talking about the New York Magazine one, where there's a lot of like sort of hypersensitive concern in certain areas, and a lot of kind of hipster callousness in other areas. And so I should say this is a package with many, many authors. This is not one single authored thing. So if it's not consistent, like there are literally, I think it says possibly in one place, don't ask people what they do for work. And in another place, ask people what they do for work. Like there are things that are just objectively inconsistent because of the many authors. But if you get kind of a general vibe from this list, it's that you should be very sensitive, it says, to your most COVID-cautious friends. But also, 
you should allow people to smoke cigarettes inside. Wait, that was a weird one. Well, it's, but so it's, it's all, and also like you should not accommodate people's food allergies or other um, food requests at a dinner party. You should just serve them whatever, especially if you're a good cook and that you should have a hissy fit apparently if they don't eat whatever you serve. So it's really all over the place. That's a very Jewish one. I was actually thinking about like, what are the specific like Jewish, non-Jewish crossovers in the New York list? Um, And I thought about that one very specifically in terms of like Shabbat dinner and guests, like inviting guests and asking them about restrictions and stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, you, or serving a the whole roast pig to somebody Jewish. Well, right? yeah, so that's that's obvious. But like, it's obvious to us, perhaps, but not. Um, yeah. I mean, you have a food sensitivity in your family. Yes, I mean, so one of my children has anaphylactic food allergies, and what I, my etiquette rule, if I were etiquette dictator, would be just don't put the thing on the invitation about what are your food allergies if you're not planning to do something about it. If you're not planning to do something about it, somebody can just bring their own food or not eat there and eat later or whatever. Um, but if you ask, you can't then go ahead and serve the thing, that the, the very thing the person can't eat. Yeah, so like, you know, we host a lot. Um, and, you know, I remember reading and feeling good about this thing that I read, um, although I, we don't do this at all because people don't expect this. It's not the way that people function. It's like, oh, in Europe, nobody asks you your food restrictions. You're just expected to like eat around whatever the host makes you. And, and I'm like, yeah, I'm making a meal. I'm thinking about it. Don't tell me I don't like this or I don't like that. Or, you know, yeah. I, I want to be, you know, able to cook my meal to my meal's content. But people have these expectations. So we do ask people all the time. Um, and I feel kind of like, you know, sort of in between on that one. Even more broadly, like stepping back from that, it just seems so interesting that the same guide that's telling you to like be really like sensitive to the COVID cautious and make sure that you like, it's all about the etiquette of like avoiding misgendering somebody, avoiding and how to sort of deal with it if you accidentally miss it. It seems like it's hypersensitive in certain areas, but then in other areas, it's like, by all means, smoke cigarettes inside and serve the thing somebody's allergic to. Yeah. And it just seemed funny because like it seemed, I was trying to gauge the tone basically. So like, is this, it seemed like, so there are kind of two sets of hip people these days. I'm going to just, as, as the world expert on hip people, clearly, you know, like mother of two living in, you know, a somewhat suburban neighborhood of Toronto. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I think in my memory of it in New York, at least, is that there were kind of the downtown um, avant-garde kind of truly like <laughs> no rules, no health consciousness, no sanctimony types, sort of artist types. And I think they, is it Dimes Square? Am I right? Am I hallucinating that that's where they hang out? I I don't know anything about this. Okay, so there's some area of New York where the people like this hang out. There's some artist woman, muse, something who's kind of at the center of it. There have been articles about these people. And they were not COVID cautious. They were very much not like that. But then there are also people who work in media and who are very much up on like the latest hypersensitivities and all of that. And they also live in New York, and they're also sort of young and hip in a way. And I feel like this guide is this weird mishmash of these two values. Both the hyper-conscious and the hyper-unconscious. So that's the way I was trying to, that's the way I would kind of make sense of this, that a New York magazine guide is about, like, what's hip in New York these days, and it's kind of... um, the assumption Both. that we should, like, New Yorkers' etiquette rules should spread out to the rest of the world. Well, I don't know if this guide <laughs> assumes that. I mean, I think it's hard to accuse something that's literally calling itself New York Magazine of... Although New you Yorker and I know, even though, I mean, 
we have connections to New York. You've lived in New York. Well, you are yeah, New Yorker. I spent most of my life um, here, yeah. But I was going to say, New York Magazine and the New Yorker are yeah. both very New York centric, yeah. but also are aware of their space. And the New York Times, sure. right, are three publications that come out of New York that are very New York centric, yeah. but yeah. also are aware that they are being read way beyond sure. New York itself. Sure, I think that's right. Um, and whether I mean, I was thinking about like a lot of this sort of New York lifestyle content when it is and isn't applicable specifically. To not to get really provincial, New York and Toronto, the only places that, not the only places that exist, but the only places I know very well. And um, there was an article in the New York Times about, uh, oh no, this was not in the New York Times, sorry, this was also in the cut, oh my goodness, about the rich mothers who, um, who relate to Fleischman is in trouble, the TV yes, show. Yes, I saw that article. And we haven't spoken about Fleischman is in trouble. We have. I still have to watch it, and then. We'll, but I have read the lifestyle content about it, and there was all of this stuff about um, the mothers in New York and like the whole sort of scene at the elementary schools or whatever. And I was trying to think: Does this exist in Toronto or not? And. Um, the short answer is yes and no. Oh, yeah. Fleischmann's a great place to transition to the uh, Hey Alma article about, uh, you know, the Jewish ways of approaching this. Uh, what did you think about the uh, these types of rules? Okay, like, which ones were specifically, like, you know... Uh, like head scratchers to you, which ones made made perfect sense? What are the ones that are missing? Uh, what are the ones that are clearly very, uh, you know, Gen Z centric? Sure. Um, well, I the the one that jumped out at me for our purposes was number fifteen. Don't assume that all rabbis are men. It's twenty twenty three, people. Yeah, that one seems so elementary and so basic. <laughs> I was like, do we? Is that even a rule anymore? But it's like that feminist riddle where it turns out that the surgeon is the mother, like the yes, father. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh my goodness, a, a woman can be. A doctor? Oh boy, that's exciting. So that one seemed like... Well, a lot, I will say that a lot of the list seemed to be generationally mysterious to me. So for example, um, number 39, never order your deli sandwich on white bread. Be an adult, enjoy some seeded rye. It felt like very um, Catskills sort of... Yeah, especially given the, like, the, the subhead, if you have a weird bagel order, like, own it. Right. And saying that, like, you should be able to order whatever you want. And if you want, there was something about if you want ketchup on your latkes, that's acceptable, too. Uh, uh, No, it's not. Sorry. but Sure. You and I might say that. But if, like, you can go and say that you're allowed to have a weird bagel order and you're allowed to have a weird, like latka topping but you're not allowed to order something on white bread it's riffing on the what what was interesting okay so the other yeah so another one that really jumped out at me was never ask someone if their nose is real because i cannot imagine not to be all it's 2023 people but it is 2023 people and i just when is this happening like where in 1960 long island is this all taking place yeah and on top of that like I thought that we're in a place in society where everybody talks about the work that they're doing and they're getting done and there's no shame around that. If you've had an extra nose added to the side. <laughs> and the, the wonderful thing about us recording in person is that when I say an extra nose added to the side, I can physically gesture for where that other nose is. Yes, would be, of course. And you can see what I mean. Yeah, so that was one. Um, then another one that I thought we need to flag for sure is number 23. If you're approached by a Chabadnik on the street asking yes, if you're Jewish <laughs> and you don't want to engage an appropriate response, Response is I'm not interested, but thank you. And then it says ignoring them is rude. Do you agree, Avi, with that assessment? Because I mean, I think ignoring everybody is rude. Um, 
But then again, there are plenty of people that I am sure Evelyn ignores, um, including maybe us. Um, and well, when I give Evelyn a big hello, uh, and she ignores me, like I don't know, like I'm sure there are people that she, that Evelyn Frick thinks it's okay to ignore, yes. um, and or whatever. And you know, maybe if you want to ignore a Chabadnik because you're just not even interested in engaging with them that day, that's fine too. Oh, I think so. This is going to be. I'm going to be. You don't have to be uh, rude. I'm going to be extremely 2023 post me too feminist about this but i think i ignore people on the street who try to talk to me as a rule that's just something i grew up yes in new york city in um an era of new york city that was maybe a little more more like the one now and less like the one of sort of the bloomberg years or whatever and like i would not people would try to i was a 12 year old girl people were trying to talk to me all the time i would not talk to them i have it ingrained do not talk to people talking to me on the street Mm -hmm. and i don't talk to people talking to me on the street unless it's like you know an 80 year old woman at the bus stop talking about when the bus is coming we have a long conversation that's fine that i do but like if somebody's soliciting on the street for something i do not talk to them and that is whether it's Chabad, whether it's... Um, Greenpeace. Whatever, whatever it is. People are asking exactly. for the monthly charities exactly. or whatever. I Amnesty not, International. I just say, the if, I think they're gonna, if I think I'm going to be hassled, I say no thanks for my own sake to get away. I do not talk to people on the street. So I don't see why... Th- I think there's this weird notion that maybe some secular Jews have that you're like being anti-Semitic if you don't like acknowledge the Chabad person, that they somehow are this like avatar of Jewish authenticity and you have to kind of duly acknowledge that you are Jewish to them or else you're self-hating or something. I don't think so. I think there's somebody trying to talk to you on the street. If you don't want to talk to them, you keep walking. Yep. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Um, So which jumped out at you? Because I I have more, but I don't want to... I can go with like, I mean... There's some that were so wrong um, from a Jewish perspective. I was like, you know, like, if you get a tattoo, don't lie to your Jewish family about it. And for the love of Hashem, if it's in Hebrew and you don't speak Hebrew, spell check first. So, yes, the second one, for sure. (laughs) Do I think that we should be getting tattoos? If you're observant and you think about, like, tattoos as something wrong, then maybe you shouldn't get a tattoo. But I'm not here to, again, tell you what to do. Um, But I don't think that it's wrong necessarily to, like, not tell your family if it's going to cause like great familial trauma. Uh, you know, like if you have a tattoo that's easily covered up and is never going to be seen um, and you decided that you wanted this tattoo and you know that it's going to devastate your family, you don't need to like be out and proud about it and say, hey, mom, by the way, Bubby, I got a tattoo. Well, is that the Gen Z aspect here? Is this the like, it's, this is a guide for people getting a tattoo to rebel against their parents' as versus people getting a tattoo who are, you know, autonomous as adults doing what they feel like with their bodies. You know what I mean? Like, cause why, like, I guess, I mean, fine. Like I can't imagine this coming up that I would be getting a tattoo. I feel like I've made it to 39 without one. I'm probably not about to, but if I did, I can't. I thought, I thought we were going for matching ones after this recording. Well, this would be, I think they only sell cannabis over here these days. So if you want a tattoo, you might have to dig, but yeah. yeah um, so that was, no. I'm not getting a tattoo. <laughs> nor am I, nor am I. But if I did, I can't imagine being concerned about, well, who would be my family? Would it be like, at this point, it would be my husband. And I feel like, yeah, he probably would know if I had a tattoo. But anyway, um, but can I just say the one that I liked, though, before we return sure. to sort of fisking the... The Alma The fisking of the Alma. It sounds like some sort of like festival. Um, okay, so I really liked one item. Okay. Number nine, 
a little shout out to inside number nine. Oh, I was um, about to talk about that, actually. Okay. Nine and ten. Oh, really? So all pets in a Jewish household are Jewish, and it's acceptable to speak about them as such. I thought that was cute and kind of silly. Is there a religious angle I'm missing? Cause and I'm, if you have the opportunity to throw a bark mitzvah, this is number ten. Okay, no, no, I, I'm not talking about bark mitzvah. Or mi- the, bee mitzvah. For any a, other kind of pet, do it. And if you need inspo, look here and here. Um, I am so against both of these. Number nine, really? Number nine and ten, oh, yeah. Oh, no, not nine. Oh, right. no, no. I think it's because you and I are very well, uh, different about the, yeah. dif- the, the way in which we think about our Judaism, right? I think that um, when you call something that is so obviously not uh, spiritual or not religious um, that thing, you're kind of reducing the religious aspect of the people that actually care about it. Like for people that see religion as something deep and meaningful and a connection with, you know, a higher being of some kind or another and to say, oh yeah, my cat is Jewish too. And my cat's going to have a bar mitzvah, right? Yeah, I think the bar mitzvah. So I would, I'm like, a strong They're component. one of the same. It's oh, basically so me, saying like... Yeah, I see what you're saying. Because to me, nine seems wonderful and ten seems icky. And I was trying to pinpoint why. And I think it is that I could imagine some pets being sort of culturally as much Jewish as they are Canadian or whatever. Like they are, they live in the family they live in. So yeah, so the, from a cultural perspective, it makes perfect sense. But the bark mitzvah seems a little, it just seems sort of... Cringe. Right, so that actually goes to a lot of what's on this um, list is mm-hmm. the some of these rules clearly think about uh, Judaism as something that is spiritual and faith-based, and some of it is very, very cultural. Mm-hmm. And I, I recognize both, but I'm always going to err on the side of uh, faith and tradition and religion, mm-hmm. uh, which is fine for me. And I, you know, I mm-hmm. love the fact that Phoebe Maltzbovi is very much in camp culture, and and that that's where that lies. But I see well, it, it is what this it is confusing, and <laughs> yeah. that's what it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, with that, you know, with that in mind, I, like it made sense. Right. And this is very cultural. Right. The number 19, where it was like the Ashkenazi normativity rule. Right. Getting thrown out the window. If you're an Ashkenazi, do you don't assume that other Jews are also Ashkenazi? Right. Oh, well, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I had I wrote about that, actually, for the CJN website this week in terms of Hanchi and a little bit of sort of digging into my many thoughts on this. But I wonder what this means like if you're in certain communities in North America it would be a fair assumption that another Jew is Ashkenazi and if they tell you that they're not is this the crisis like it's the same as like Dan Savage um the sex and relationships uh podcaster uh, columnist he has um mentioned many times that like people assume that the parents of like young children are straight and then because most are and he doesn't think that's like somebody doing a homophobia if they assume that I, I think he's right but I think that I'm also right on this one in that in the uh, in the cultural moment that we live in right now I think we're still in this moment where um, you know Mizrahi Sephardic all of the non Ashkenazi Jews still f- are sort of semi in the closet right so it's like really? the where? gay in Canada or uh, in Israel? Maybe or? less so. In, I mean, it's starting to change. Okay. Definitely in America. Montreal is hugely Sephardic. Like, there's, there's a significant Sephardic okay. population. So it's very different there. I do not remember this being wow. the case when I was in high school. Like, if 
if I had friends who were Sephardic, they would just like say they were Sephardic. Yeah, but I just, I'm saying that most people that are Ashkenazi, the same way that in the 80s, you just assumed everybody was straight. Yes. Right? Unless somebody was so obviously gay. Right? And so in the Ashkenazi world, you just assume everybody's Ashkenazi. And right. so you don't stop to think unless you know for sure. Oh, but yeah, what that- does that mean? Is it, I guess I'm wondering what that means practically. Like if you learn that somebody you thought was Ashkenazi isn't, What's what happens from a cultural perspective yeah, or I, from a religious perspective? Either. So, from a cultural perspective, I would say that they don't necessarily have the same food frames of reference sure. as you do. Um, they don't have the same, um, you know, uh, musical Jewish music. If they're into Jewish music, they, they might not be into the same. They might not have the same things at home that you had. So that's. Well, actually, can we pause there? on the cultural for a second? Because that's actually on this list from Hey Alma. So. Because the follow-up part is, and if you're Ashkenazi, certainly don't expect Mizrahim, Sephardim, Bukharian Jews, etc., to educate you on your cultural differences. Now, this is very, yeah, again, very hard. hard like, like it's disagree. not my job to educate you. You know, I feel like if this is about, if you're talking about like cuisine and cultural references, and by the by, I feel like this is a good time to mention Seinfeld, Jerry Seinfeld. He's not fully Ashkenazi. He's like part Ashkenazi, right? And like part, I, I, I think he might be part no Syrian. Clue no, but I mean like this. he's, I think of him as like a real sort of Ashkenazi reference, but mm-hmm. he's like, he himself is actually, anyway, we can all go The most that Ashkenazi later. person on that show is George Costanza. Let's be honest. That's why I relate to him so Even though closely. he's not Jewish. That's why I relate to George Costanza more than to most people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's not my job to educate you. It's like, why not just share both of your food yeah, traditions? Yeah, the, the assumption. The Why is, is it like racist to say how, if I tell you how I make matzo ball soup? Like, yeah, so I think that there's, that's bleeding in from like culture, uh, identity politics yeah. of like, it's not my job to tell you yeah. like how I do my hair if I'm a black person, right? Or what's yeah, so different about it. Yeah, but this is such a different it. context it's, it's so, that. I really, really do agree. This is such a different agree. context. Um, I can't agree more. But so the religious one, it <laughs> yeah. seems, would be more, and that you can speak to because... Yeah, and from a religious perspective, there are a lot of differences, right? Uh, whether you eat certain foods that are referred to as kidneyot on right. Passover is a big one. Uh, the way in which you pray, if you pray regularly, is very, very different if you're Ashkenazi versus Sephardi. Um, so there are significant differences, and you can't assume, right, that, you know, and, 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 and like there are times when, when one should be sensitive. So, for example, if you are in a synagogue and you're going to ask somebody to lead services and, and it's an Ashkenazi synagogue and it turns out that they're Sephardic, you either have to be okay with them possibly praying Sephardic because they don't know how to do it otherwise, or maybe not ask them or, you know, ask something else, ask, ask someone else. Um, and that that's a fair thing to say. It's, it's nothing wrong with the way in which you pray, but we pray this way, and either we're going to be okay with all of us praying differently for this service, or um, you're going to, we'll find somebody else. Yeah, so I'm going to have to take a step, huge step back. Please. Do you think that the craving for these etiquette lists is some kind of a secular desire for religion, right? Because here are these rules, you know, commandments of sorts. That mm-hmm. people who are not, you know, necessarily religious, e- even the, even the Hayama one is, as you say, sort of cultural in a lot of places. Do you think that the reason people are sort of really excited about these etiquette lists is that is that there's some kind of like thirst for religion, or do you think it's just a totally different category? I, I, I've I've heard this argument being made. 
um, I, I kind of like it. Um, I think that there's definitely, you know, people have examined this idea about thirst for ritual. There's somebody by the name of Casper uh, Turculi who wrote a book called The Power of Ritual, um, where he shows how ritual has permeated secular society. He's somebody who went to Harvard Div Divinity School. He studied the idea of secular ritual. He looks at yoga. He looks at soul cycle. He looks at um, various other places where rituals take place and, and moments in secular life are highly ritualized. And I think that that's fascinating. I really, um, it points out that we do need that. But the other side of religion um, is that there are rules, there are norms, there are things that we do and things that we don't do. Um, and these rules are there to sort of like remind us them. Um, and so we have legal rules like don't cross on a red light, which apparently like, well, pedestrians at least in Montreal all do it and apparently here in Toronto nobody crosses the street in a red light well uh, I wouldn't say nobody but that's giving up giving too much away yes um well yes because you're a New Yorker and I'm a Montrealer so we're the ones crossing the streets in the red light um but like yeah I think that there's definitely something there about that and especially the way in which this Alma list um bleeds into things that are ritualized and do have you know, uh, moments of like religious impact here, mm -hmm. right? That uh, anyone can wear kippahs and talises, not just cis men, right? Um, sure, that's well. A, they sell those scarves periodically at H and M that look like talises. I, I, I go for that one. The one place where I will push back is again cultural uh, norms, right? If you're in a synagogue where people will look very, very scant at you, if you are a liberal rabbi, if you are a woman who is a rabbi who has religious cousins and you gladly subsume your liberalism to go to this bar mitzvah of this kid and you're in the women's section behind, you know, on one side of the machitza and literally nobody would ever conceive of wearing a talis and you wear a talis all the time. I would say Honestly, maybe you shouldn't just um, because that's not a norm in the space that you're in and it's better to uh, go with that norm. And I might get pushback from liberal rabbis about this, um, but I do believe that maybe sometimes your job is to either not show up to a space if you can't abide by their norms or, um, you know, um, wear that, like not wear the talus. That's and, a tricky one. Because I mean, I'm, I'm thinking that if you're in that situation and you show up in like a strapless gown... Like, so you should know not to show I know, but up. I mean, in a I, but I feel gown. like these are different. To it's me. like this woman. Did you see this article? This thing about this woman the by the protest, suit. the I bathing her, suit at the hotel. Picture from the back of the woman in the. It's the suit. only picture that seems to have been out right now. <laughs> oh well, yeah, I did see that picture. Um, Memorable. Yeah, so yeah. she was basically protesting yeah. and saying yeah. the norms here are. But I a think problem. that that's different. So I guess what I was going to say about that, though, is that if you're showing up and you simply are like out of vanity or whatever feel that you have to show off your body at every possible instance and are going to do the, prioritize that that's like different from I feel like wearing a talus to make some kind of statement about your own religion politics is like it's different it's not necessarily about one being better or worse or more appropriate or whatever but they're different choices they are but I think but that they might amount to the same they're 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 relatively similar right sure. so I have a friend who is a conservative rabbi who will not pray in a um in a, a minion with a machitza mm -hmm. because he believes in egalitarianism well, so much so the same way that he better. says that orthodox people will not pray in a space with uh without a machitza mm -hmm. he won't pray in a space with one well that was going to be my next question is like is it better to show up inappropriately dressed to the service or is it better to just if you don't believe in 
the ethics of that um, denomination to so, just not show up at all. So context specific, mm-hmm. and I'm, I would never mm-hmm. make a general rule. I would say if it's about well, your strapless, you backless gown, yeah. maybe, yeah. maybe find something that's a little more appropriate. Sure. If it's about a talus, um, maybe if you feel strongly enough about it, don't go if you can't wear a talus, but I don't think that you should wear a talus to provoke. Yeah. Uh, even if you're not doing it for a, provo- pr- a provocative manner, you're doing it because you genuinely believe and you're wearing a talus. And the same way, even though you genuinely believe that this is the dress you should be wearing, you probably shouldn't be wearing it in certain spaces. And do you think that more observant people, what's their social obligation if somebody's having a reform bar mitzvah? Do they, can they attend that? I think everybody's going to be different. Because, yeah. um, I mean, I think it, I, I guess I don't, I don't like a system where... Yeah, so I've spoken in spaces um, where I don't feel comfortable praying, mm-hmm. um, and I'll, like, attend, but, you know, be there and not necessarily pray, um, and try to make it clear that, like, I respect your space, um, but it's not a space for me, and that it's not a value judgment. Um, and I think that we have to to make those things as, as acceptable as possible. I think if your family member is getting married and it is not uh, being performed by a rabbi that you find acceptable, you should still try and show up uh, and uh, be there for family and not make a fuss. And I think that those are important norms. That's the, the, the menschlichkeit of it all, right? That's my favorite word. I think this whole thing right, gets subsumed under the rules of menschlichkeit, how to be nice and be like a good person. Um, and that's, you know, that's there. Yeah, yeah, that I think that makes sense. Um, yeah, so I just I guess one thing that really struck me about this list, sort of like to kind of the Hey Alma list, to sort of look at it cohesively, is what year it seemed to be from. Um, and I realize that I'm kind of foreshadowing what's going to be my nachas for this week, but I won't drop what that is just yet. Um, but what I find is that like a lo- it seems to be this weird mix of like hyper aware of things like again. Um, so sorry, with the talus, um, anyone can wear kippahs and talus is not just cis men. So cisgender men, this is very like trans aware. And the author, um, as I said, uses she, they pronouns, like it's very sort of trans aware, very of the moment aware, sensitive list. But it also seems to come from like, as I said, like 1960 Long Island in some way, like a lot of the references are extremely like for the Jews who go to summer camp and know what sort of like, and have the rye bread. And then there was like, okay, so number 64, uh, about 35 years old is the cutoff for calling yourself an NJB, nice Jewish boy or an, or NJG, nice Jewish girl. Um, are people like some of these references just seem to come from like, like who is even, is this still a thing? Nice Jewish boy, nice Jewish girl. That just all seems extremely. Or Jap. Number all Jap. Also, yeah. this all seems extremely dated and like just from some something from a Philip Roth novel and not from anybody's life. I mean, it, it just it, like technically I'm probably like a good 10 years too old for this list. And like it just all seems to be coming from some way earlier era, except when it doesn't. So it's like this thing. It's never acceptable to call someone a shiksa. And I'm thinking like when in the last like 20 years has somebody seen like a Jewish man and a non-Jewish woman and said, Oh no, he's with a shiksa. Like, where is this happening? I still hear people saying shiksa, but in a way like that, it's, 
Very internally, right? I, uh, again, it's a word that you're not supposed to use in polite society anymore. You're not supposed to, you know, and, and what's interesting is that it's, it's very much a gendered thing. You, you know, the, the, the Yiddish equivalent for a male would be a shagetz, right, right. and you don't hear anybody saying, oh, she's oh, with a shagetz. My husband is called one every other day. No, just kidding. Um, yeah, this is... It's on his business card. <laughs> Astrophysicist. Shagetz. <laughs> I mean, it will be now, right? Like um, now that we've said this, um, yeah. It's just like all of this just seemed to be yeah, out of some so other much, world. Yeah, there's so much. There's so much questionable. Like, I mean, I actually was like the thing that struck me was the. Not, you're never supposed to be Ashkenormative, and yet every single cultural reference that is in the article is completely Ashkenormative. Well, right? Okay, thank you. Yes, yeah, so that that seemed to be extremely because it's trying to be kind of like this broad city sort of like. Well, that's what Alma, Hey Alma is, let's be honest, right? Sure. Yeah, I don't know. I, I thought it was very not okay, for example, from a religious perspective, to say it's okay to skip the part of the Seder after dinner, right? I'm a huge... Uh, no, you really, if your hosts, if your family is doing that, don't skip it, right? Be part of it, and that's a fundamental part of the Seder. Sorry, but it's coming back to me that at a Seder I did go to um, with some family in Toronto once, there was definitely a kippah on a dog at one point. <sighs> okay, whatever. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> but this, okay. The other one that I thought was fascinating, sorry, I'm going to, I have to put this one in. This is like blew me away, right? For no pun intended. Number 59, never blow out the Shabbat candles, even if you lit them late and want to go to bed. Either stay up and be prepared for your home, either stay up, or be prepared for your home to be engulfed in righteous flames. And what's fascinating is the Mishnah actually has a discussion about this. Oh, really? And the Mishnah actually yeah. says that if you are fearful, right, for um, thieves, right, if you're living in a place where there's not a lot of light and there's yeah. light in the, in the window because yeah. of the Shabbat candles and you're afraid yeah. that somebody's going to rob you, or you're afraid of various other evils that might befall you, which in this case is exactly that, you're allowed to blow out the Shabbat but candles. But wouldn't that be, I mean, I'm not even up on the Mishnah, <laughs> but isn't that a well-known thing, like, that you shouldn't fast on Yom Kippur if you're going to, like, die if you do it? It's, isn't that the same general idea? Well, blowing out Shabbat candles versus fasting on Yom Kippur no, is... No, but I mean, uh, it, but it's the same idea of, like, if you're going to die if you follow the letter of the law you don't right? yeah so I mean, so i would say here's a here's a great orthodox case yeah. right um that will and i'll extend yeah. it to, to to liberal stuff right say you lit the shabbat candles fully expecting your home everything's fine you're gonna be yeah. home for the next few hours until the candles are out and everything's yeah. good and then an hour later right something happens unexpected mm -hmm. totally a good thing yeah. whatever it is everybody has to leave the house yeah. right and you say to yourself i'm i'm not really comfortable leaving yeah. these candles on because we might have a fire and it's shabbat and i don't know what to do yeah. but we have to leave this house yeah. right now yeah. um then i would say uh you should blow out the candles absolutely the same same sort of approach because you are fearful there's a fear for your life and you are going to always be sitting there wondering and in this case right maybe light the candles earlier than than whatever or light smaller candles but um if you really are afraid and you say to yourself i'm really tired i'm going to sleep now but i can't and i'm afraid of whatever then maybe well this literally happened all of this happened with a uh, hanukkah candles last year um because we hanukkah candles are different because are they, are they less because on shabbat the idea is that on shabbat you're not supposed to extinguish a flame right right Right, right. And I therefore, okay. that's a Shabbat violation, so you're stuck. Well, right? we were trying for the, for the cultural and, you know, 
quasi-religious reasons to have the menorah going, and at one point my children were ages where this was not physically plausible. But this year we managed to do it, and our house did not get engulfed in righteous flames. I have to mention also, while we're fisking this list, um, the, what is this? Um, The non-Jews section, because that was interesting. And also sort of confusing for me about like where we are in time. Non-Jews get three items, okay? And <laughs> I'm just wondering like in what world this is taking place. Okay, so 25, item 25, always correct slash speak out against anti-Semitism if you feel safe doing so. 26, teaching someone about the Holocaust or other instances of violent anti-Semitism is never preachy. 27, respond to someone proselytizing to you however you see fit, within reason. Okay. Is that really, even for observant Jews, the extent of your interactions with non-Jews in 2023? Is whether it's the extent of... Is it just like anti-Semitism and proselytizing? I I mean, again, like, so my husband's not Jewish... Our interactions are like... She doesn't wake you up every morning and ask you if you've accepted Jesus into your heart yet. Yeah, right. Um, Definitely. It's like we're getting our children to school. We're, you know, like dealing with our stuff in our house, needing repairs. You know, we're not like... It just... But even if you're not intermarried, even if you are observant and married to a fellow Jew or only dating other Jews, whatever... Don't you have non-Jewish colleagues? Sure. Friends, yeah, the all barista, the time. whoever, and like interactions that are not, you know, like <laughs> that are not like this. And it's just, it's just bizarre. Like that your only interactions with non-Jews would be educating them about anti-Semitism. And it almost, I'm trying to tell like, okay, so here's my question. Is this very passe in some weird like time warp? Or is this in fact, on the contrary, very now and this is like hyper identity politics ways of looking at things. I, I, it's like, I, I don't know. I, I get the sense that there are people that actually feel like every interaction they have with non Jews is either possible anti Semitism or preachiness or proselytizing. But and where? Where is this? I, I don't know. I, I, I just, I, I, it I baffles just... my mind. I, I'm, I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I, I, I just want to like sort of figure out and ask what are some of the rules that you think of when you think about norms in the Jewish community? I don't think I'm qualified. I think well, you, you've been in Jewish situations. I have been in Jewish situations. I'm every situation I'm in is arguably a Jewish situation. Um, I think. Yeah, I mean, I guess kind of what I was getting at earlier about, like, respect going both ways. I think it's, I don't, I'm not, you know, Dawkins going around, you know, railing against religion. I think people should be respectful of more religious people. I also think religious people should be respectful of less religious people and so forth. And that I don't think that a situation where the respect is only going in one direction, whichever direction that is, is good etiquette. I think etiquette is that we all, you know, live on this planet together and, um, yeah, should be like, should be reasonable to one another, if that makes sense. I, I, I yes, I think it does make sense. And, um, I think that's so much, right. Cause what's fascinating is like, if you get this idea of menschlichkeit, right. To be a mensch, have you heard this term? You've heard this term, be a mensch. Yes. Yes. I have heard this term. It's a little Ashkenazi normative. It is very There is not a... I will accept it. Yes, this idea of menschlichkeit is very um, 
Ashkenormative as a term, but as soon as you've really absorbed what it means to like be a mensch, so many of these rules are like not needed as rules because you just sort of like get it. If you're a good person, you know how to be a good person and you just are able to like move on. And there's no need to say like this, share the pickle plate, get your own pickle plate if you're going to have it all, right? Like be a mensch. Some of it is also just, or common sense. Like, I don't know. I think that's... um... Yeah. Well, I think we've squeezed out every every ounce of menschlichkeit we can out of this discussion. Uh, let's move on to our nachas of the week. Sure. What's your nachas this week? Thanks, Avi. My nachas of the week kind of relates to the item on the <laughs> uh, new Jewish rules about asking people about their noses. Okay, so it is a video in the New York Times called A Brief History of Hating My Face by Shayna Feinberg. And it's about... Basically, her body dysmorphic disorder, um, she's a filmmaker, and she covers in this video herself and um, also the story of a young French woman who also has body dysmorphic disorder. It's an interesting video because it's, it, you see these two seemingly quite attractive young women who have this mental condition um, where they think they look terrible, and it's presented, um, Feinberg presents it in the video as being very much connected to sort of Jewishness and ethnicity more broadly. So her father is Jewish or was Jewish and her mother is not and is um, a white, blonde American woman. Um, And then the French woman she also interviews is um, her mother is white and French and her father is of Algerian background. And she, both both of these young women more physically resemble their fathers and seem to understand their body dysmorphic disorder as being somehow like that they connect looking more ethnic to looking more masculine because their fathers, it all sounds very fraught. But then you get to the end of the video and um, basically um, Feinberg's mother is saying that as a child she was, she as in... Um, the daughter was chubby and is seemingly kind of makes this kind of like snark about her daughter's appearance. And then I started to wonder whether this was all so complicated about ethnicity or whether this is just a case of um, somebody's mother being nasty about her looks her whole childhood. And maybe that would not be nice for somebody. But anyway, I found this video very upsetting, but also very interesting. And also the reason I wanted to recommend it specifically um, in connection with this, with today's um, episode of Bonjour High, is that it really, it struck me as like concerns from a different era. Like I don't, I wouldn't have thought that today young Jewish women in this era of Broad City and Gal Gadot and so forth are thinking, I look Jewish and what a crisis this is for me. I definitely need to check this out is what it comes down to. <laughs> um, okay, I have a much... Uh, different, although uh, similar to what we've disca- discussed in the past about uh, uh, thrift shops, I still buy CDs. I, I have I have an Apple Music subscription. I use it a lot. I get a lot of music, but I still have many, many thousands of these. There's a lot of there's a lot of record labels that haven't yet made the transition to digital. So I'm still sometimes browsing through random shops that still have CDs for stuff. And sometimes I, I used to like have this imagine. I used to have this imagined uh, show on radio that I would like only play music 
um, from the dollar bins of CD stores that I had gone through that week. That would be and amazing. then give it out every single week. Like, yeah. if you want the CD that I just played, like a track off of, write it in and we'll send it to you. And that would be the entire concept behind the show. So sometimes I still go to CD stores and I still um, and end up buying random stuff that may not have made it. This one uh, actually turns out I bought it. What I'm about to talk about is a CD that I bought yesterday while browsing in Toronto. Um, but uh, turns out it has made it. It is on Apple Music. It is on all of the uh, things, but I would have never known about it to search for it if it not for it being there. And because it was just a dollar, I, I bought it. Um, the Milken Archive of Jewish Music um, is a was a well known project that they uh, that was put out several years ago with various uh, choral and classical works um, that had a strong Jewish themes. And I'd never seen this one before by somebody named Thomas Beveridge called Yiskor Requiem. And it combines elements of Yiskor with elements of Requiem with, with sort of a very specifically, very uh, deliberately interfaith sort of uh, performance work. And I thought it was a beautiful uh, album. I listened to it. I really like it. Um, it's a dollar if you know which stores to find it at. Or it's on Apple, Spotify, wherever. I was going to say, Jason Goriel, a Toronto writer, um, has a new, I think pretty new book called On Browsing. I haven't read it, but it's about this. It's oh. about like browsing in person for records, I think also. So. Yeah, so um, this has been fun. Um, I will be a mensch and I will say thank you, as always. Great conversation. I will be a menchette and say thank you, Avi. This has been fun. <sighs> a menchette, yes. <laughs> like a, like a shake. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending February 18th, Shabbat Parashat Mishpatim. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcast is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We would love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It's one of the best ways we get new listeners. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. And I'm Phoebe Maltzbovi. 